All right, good morning, welcome. Hopefully, I bet you some more women are gonna dwindle in this morning. Um, so a couple of announcements we do, I'm, I'm gonna say this again, we do meet next week and then we're off the following week. And um, I wanted you to pull out your homework for a second. Because if you're like me, sometimes you miss this question or you do your homework sometimes like last minute. And there's a question on here, looking day by day, number two. And it says, continue to spend each, each day in God's word. Be ready to share something that impacted you from your daily reading that you recorded in your theme journal. Well, we didn't do a theme journal. So, right? Well, basically, we them. Okay. Okay. So if you did do a theme journal, that's great. Do that. And if you didn't, just be ready to share um, what... You're learning in God's word how he's, um, what he's teaching you and what's impacting you there. And, um, yeah, then that's it. But I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. And Chris is not here. She's on vacation. Um, so we, we should pray for her. And let's do that. Father, thank you that we can boldly come before your throne of grace. Because you first loved us, we love you. Thank you for sending Jesus to take on your righteous wrath on our behalf. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you that when we were rebels and hated you in your kindness, Lord, and in your mercy, you saved us and you've given us your spirit. You've given, you've given us your word. Oh, Father, thank you um, that we have your word, and I pray this morning that we would um, bow and come under your word by your spirit, that you would work in each of our hearts through your word. Lord, I pray this morning that if there is conviction, it would be from you, and that you would, you would do that, and you encourage these women that being near you is our good. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in and through Wellspring Kids and for the faithful servants. And Lord, we pray that you would impact those little hearts early and that you would save them. I pray the women would be encouraged this morning over there. And Father, I, um, I need your help. I'm weak and needy. I thank you um, that, that uh, your grace is uh, sufficient in everything. Father, we commit the morning to you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So this morning we are going to take out our notebooks and look at the disciplines once again. We are here. Wellspring's purpose is to <coughs> equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards someone, and that's Jesus Christ with his word, with the word of God, so that they, so that we live gospel-transformed life. There's a purpose in it, that we live gospel-transformed life, thus strengthening the church and its gospel purpose. And we do this by always starting with our own hearts. That's discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. We must, we must shepherd our hearts. We must lead our hearts, draw near with our hearts to him and his word. We're here to encourage one another to do just that. 
you know, I'm so thankful for Wellspring, for the opportunity to be encouraged and, and to encourage and uh, to prioritize our lives around these disciplines. They remind us and encourage us to see just how important it is to meet with him and his word and how important it is to make this a priority in our lives. You know, when I'm not shepherding my heart, when I'm not pursuing Jesus this way, when I'm not meeting with him in his word regularly, I grow weak. I grow weak in guarding my heart. Um, I grow weak in what I'm doing with my thoughts throughout the day. I grow weak. I have weak counsel to others, a weak prayer life. Doubt can creep in. Um, I grow weak, and I can forget God. I can forget his great promises that he has for us in Christ. You know, when that happens, we can eventually start to struggle with our inner man and our in this mixed condition. Um, you know, it's um, I, I, I could grow weak in having uh, less desire to meet with him in his word and uh, in, um, in, in our own sin and grow weak when others sin against me. You know, we can grow weak in our thinking and even start to have wrong thinking. So our hearts, remember, they can be deceived. We need to be reminded of that. It's important that we are shepherding our hearts, that we're counseling our hearts, we're leading our hearts to his word in order to meet with him. That's when we're strengthened in our love for uh, and our affection for Jesus. So we can serve him and obey him so that we can think rightly and we can guard our hearts. We can shepherd our hearts after we close our Bibles. And we can enjoy him our Savior, more and more as we live gospel-transformed lives. Shepherding our hearts doesn't end when we close our Bibles. It's so important to spend time with God and his word, but shepherding our heart, it, it doesn't end there. It starts there. Our hearts need shepherding with what we know from his word consistently. It's ongoing shepherding of our inner man, of our hearts. And we want to encourage you to be the kind of woman that diligently pursues that. We must be. There's a lot at stake, um, and we shouldn't think that this is an option. Life is busy for all of us, and seasons will continually change. But keep fighting to make meeting with him in his word a priority. And we keep saying it takes discipline. We'll probably be fighting this for the rest of our lives. So um, we have to be purposeful, and we have to be diligent. And the second discipline is about the relationships we have in our homes. She ministers to those in her household with their heart for God and the gospel. It's very easy to skip over those relationships, right? To leap, leapfrog over the people in our homes, to get to other things, to get to other people. Placing other people or things outside of our home is more of a priority and neglect those relationships in our homes. So we have to be concerned first about those relationships that God has placed right there in our homes and with those who enter into our homes. So as we live gospel-transformed lives, it begins in our sphere of influence, right where God has placed us. We want to give off an aroma in our homes as someone who loves God, who meets with Him in His Word, who delights in Him, and then live out that gospel-transformed life there. We want to make an impact for the gospel there. You know, our kids are grown, and we're empty nesters and grandparents. 
And I can honestly say I have many regrets in this area. Mom, my children still at home, I don't want you to have the same regrets. You have such an opportunity. You have such an opportunity. Don't miss it. Go fast. Looking back, you know, I wasn't as diligent as I wish I'd been. But God is so gracious in that. He's so gracious. And it's never too late. It's never too late to start, right? Remember, I love this, nothing can stop the gospel. And that's a great reminder for me. And the third discipline is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, discipline one and discipline two, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And this is how we minister to people in the church, how, we, how the body cares for the body to help the body grow. In our small groups and mentoring relationships and friendships and next generation ministries and here in Wellspring. And this is how we care for others outside of the church as well. All right, so please take out your outline. Are you passionate for salvation's rest? We're back in discipline one. We told you at the beginning that we will um, we'll progress through. We were in discipline one, and then uh, we've been in discipline two. Now we're going to take a step back and look at our hearts again. It's really important to always have that before us. Our passage this morning is Hebrews 4. I'm going to go ahead and turn to Hebrews, if you don't mind. But our passage is Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Now, most of us are probably familiar with verse 12, where the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. But we don't want to miss the context of this very familiar verse. We don't want to just isolate this verse and miss right where God has placed it in Scripture. Even though there's a lot of emphasis on the word of God and our hearts in this passage, we have an opportunity to see discipline one fitting into a greater context. It's salvation's rest in Jesus. And we need to start by reading chapter 3 and then into chapter 4 in order to help us understand the context. So please follow along with me. Therefore, are you guys there? Hebrews, okay. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he's asking them, turn your hearts and minds toward the Savior and consider Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And he's going to start to contrast Jesus with Moses. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast, our confidence, and in the boast of our hope, firm until the end. Verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your what? Hearts, do not harden your hearts. God's voice, your hearts. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do, did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, that was the problem in the wilderness. Under Moses, he's using the exodus uh, generation as, a, as an example to avoid. 
And then he starts by making some application in verse 12. He says, take care, who? Brethren, take care, brethren, right? Am I on the right? Yep, I, I typed it out, or I printed it out. Take care, brethren, and he's writing to professing Hebrew Christians. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin tries to lead us away from devotion to Christ. Sin says, love the world, um, and he's saying, encourage one another, warn one another. Verse 14, for we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter that rest because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. This letter was written to a church, to Hebrew Christians in the church, and he's saying, church, let us fear. He's getting to his point. He says, I'm concerned for you. God says there's a promise of rest, and I think history may be repeating itself. Verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, we who believe have entered that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All those works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and he's going to start to contrast, or start talking about God's work in creation. He says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, again, do not harden your hearts. So again, he's quoting Psalm 95, written by David. And David is the king over Israel who was in the promised land. And he's concerned. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. He's saying that God's rest was to be an example for us, how we rest from trying to work for salvation. We need to enter that rest, where we would only believe and not try to work. For salvation. And in our passage this morning, verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? Again, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And we'll finish the rest later. Suzanne. Am I the only one? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the question we have this morning is this. Are you, are we passionate for that? Are we passionate for salvation rest? Now, there's a huge area in your notes to take, and, uh, to take notes for the introduction, and I'll let you know when we're on point one. The introduction is long. I'm wondering if anyone can relate to this. Have you ever been on vacation, and um, now you're on your way home, you've been cooped up in the car for hours, you've been driving for hours, it's late, maybe the kids are screaming in the back, and um, you're tired, and you just want to get home. You just want to get home, you're so exhausted, you're so tired, and at this point, all you want is to rest. That's all you want. It's you want to rest, but it's a certain kind of rest. It's in your own bed, in your home, with your own pillow. And it would never, ever cross your mind to just pull over the last half hour and take a nap. Right? You've got a half hour to go, and it wouldn't cross your mind to stop or to just coast home. You know, the kids are screaming, and you're tired. Can you imagine if the speed limit's 65 on the freeway, and you decide to hit cruise control and go on 25? and just coast home. No, that's ridiculous. You would be diligent to keep going. You'd be diligent to keep your foot on the gas and to keep going, keep accelerating. Because at that point, all you want is, all you're passionate for is a certain kind of rest. The one in your home, in your bed. My goal at that point is just, it's a certain kind of rest. I'm focused on it and I'm passionate about it. I'm diligent about that one kind of rest. And as we look at our passage this morning, there's a bit of a parallel in the Christian life. And we want this kind of attitude that's here in uh, Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let's look back at it. It says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be passionate to enter that rest. The call here is to keep going, to keep accelerating, spiritually speaking, not to coast. Coasting is very dangerous. And this passage, ladies, is a warning. The Christian life is not about coasting. We're called to be diligent. We're called to be passionate for one kind of rest. And we're going to talk about it in terms of salvation's rest. It's a big kind of rest, a big kind of rest that God provides in our Savior Jesus. You know, salvation is big. Salvation isn't something that just happened that one-time event. I'm going to pull this out. Oh, maybe I don't have it anymore. You know, your blue pamphlet? It's, it's, not, that, it's not just that one-time event. It's, it, it certainly is that. It starts there. But it's much more than that. So when we see the word in Scripture, salvation or saved, it can be a little confusing. In the New Testament, salvation is spoken of in three different ways. It's talked about in a past tense way. God saved you in the past. That's the event. Remember the diagram, the one-time event? And then there's a future tense. God will save you from the wrath to come. That's at the end. But in the middle, there's a present tense where we're being saved. This is the way God describes salvation to be, a past, present, and future. So the rest that we receive in Jesus Christ can be spoken of that way, past, present, and future. Um, 
And if you look at that chart, I don't know if any of you have it, it will help explain that. We're to keep accelerating for that. We are called to participate in that. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. That's a past tense reality. We have believed and we've entered that rest. That's the one-time event. And then verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from all his works. In other words, we've rested. This is very important to understand. We've rested from our own self-righteous attempts to make ourselves right before God. We've rested from that. That's a past tense reality for believers. And there's a future entering the fullness of that rest. In heaven, we will enter a rest that we don't have right now, a rest to come. That's the third column of your chart, a future tense that we will ultimately be saved until heaven or until Christ returns. It's an ultimate expression of that rest in glorification. But there's a rest we get right now in Jesus Christ, and that is the rest we're going to focus on and talk about this morning. The rest that believers have in Jesus. Very important to understand. That's what we're talking about this morning. Verse 11 is a command, and it's in the present tense. It says, be diligent. Be diligent to enter that rest. See, there's a sense in Scripture that we are, as Christians, still being saved. A present tense reality. Christians have entered God's rest. If you're saved, you're saved. And we're to be diligent to enter that rest. That's Hebrews 4.11. And we will in the future enter the fullness of that rest in heaven. So you might be thinking, wait, 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 what are you saying? Are you saying that I have entered that rest if I believed? And that I am to diligently enter that rest? And God's word says yes. Both are true. Both are true. That's how big salvation is. And we're told to pursue salvation's rest that God offers in Jesus Christ. And the question is, are we passionate for that? As we see in our passage this morning, this is a big deal. Salvation is not just fire insurance. It's so much bigger than that. We are called to be diligent to pursue we are called to participate in our salvation diligently. The author of Hebrews is not identified, but we know that he's writing to Hebrew Christians, and there were some in the church who were genuinely saved, and there were some who were not, just like any church, even Grace Bible Church, right? Maybe some city in this room. But he is writing to this church. These Hebrew Christians, they were Jews, and they had left Judaism to follow Jesus Messiah. You know what they heard? They heard Jesus' words, so to speak, in Matthew 11, where he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. It's a spiritual rest. It's a rest for their soul. This was a really huge thing for Jesus to say. See, rest represented something very significant to the Jews because they knew that there was only one who could bring rest. And for Jesus to say that he was the one, come to me and I will give you rest, spiritual rest, it was huge. Because you know what they heard? They heard, you don't have to work to earn any righteousness. 
It's all been done for you. They heard the gospel. So they heard the gospel and they believed this and they started following Jesus. But the other Jews who did not believe in Jesus Messiah, they began to persecute these Hebrew Christians for leaving Judaism. And some of those Jews who had professed Christ were returning back to Judaism. They were starting to kind of conform under Mosaic law again to avoid persecution. These persecuted Hebrew Christians stopped accelerating toward Jesus. And they started to coast, spiritually speaking. They didn't realize how dangerous this was. And the writer of Hebrews, he's warning them because this kind of thing's happened before. Prior to the coming of Christ, where God's people were tempted to not pursue God's great salvation with passion and zeal and diligence. It's happened over and over throughout redemptive history. And he's warning this church and he's calling them, brethren, this must not happen to you too. And ladies, it's a warning for us too. That we might become tempted or even content to just coast instead of being passionate for God's great salvation rest in Christ. Look, Things are going to come into our lives that will tempt us to stop being diligent, to coast. Persecution, that's what was happening with these Hebrew Christians. Suffering, life circumstances, distractions, and all of a sudden you realize, I'm coasting, I'm coasting. Can anyone relate to that? I know I can. We need to realize just how dangerous this is. What happened? You know, we can get distracted and we can start to coast. My husband does this when he's driving. And I check with him and he thinks it's a really funny story. And I shared it last time. But when he's driving, he's very observant. And he starts looking off at stuff. We may be on the freeway and he's looking going, I didn't know that building was over there. And he goes, you know, kind of veers off. And then you hear those bump, 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 those warning signs or those warning bumps. And he gets distracted. And then he forgets to accelerate and sometimes kind of crosses the, the line, like I said. And, you know, we're always teasing him because he does this quite frequently. And then I remind him um, as his helpmate. And I don't always recommend this because it's not always with the right motive. I don't always have a right motive. So, but I might say, you know, honey, 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 you know, when he's really going off. Um, and he, he lets up off the gas because he's distracted. And um, sometimes I have to remind him of the speed limit. You know, did you know what the speed limit is? Um, and he just didn't realize he's going under the speed limit. He lets off the gas. And you know, the same thing can happen to me. I can let off the gas, but it's not because I'm observant. It's when I'm tired or not being purposeful. When I zone out, I miss exits all the time. You can ask my friends, anyone who rides with me. I don't do well staying in my lane, and I don't even realize I've drifted below the speed limit. That's not an outside distraction. That's within me. That's just in me. So there are external things, and there are things within us that tempt us to coast. And my heart have a hard time getting a grasp on how badly I need to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and I need to rest in him and I need to pursue him diligently. I can be content in my coasting for a while 
doesn't always have to do with my circumstances. And this is dangerous. It's dangerous. And this is a, so this is a warning for us to keep going and to pursue, to accelerate toward and be passionate for God's salvation, rest, and Christ. There is never a time in the Christian life that we are not to be passionate for that. Never. To not accelerate and be diligent. All right, so that was just the intro. So, as we look at our passage this morning, Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, we have three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds her heart into salvation's rest. You have four on your outline, but there's only three in this passage, and then there's a fourth one from the greater context. So these passions are in terms of questions. And the first one is, are you passionate to spend yourself, to spend yourself to enter the rest that comes from God? Spend, S-P-E-N-D, not spend. Somebody thought I was saying spend. Um, spend yourself. As we look at 4.11 right away, we have a command. It says, let us be diligent. And that's what Smith, that's what we mean by spending yourself, to be diligent. These are all going to be S words, so they have to kind of fall in that. The command means that this is not something that just happens when we become a believer or something that we do accidentally or it's not reflexive. It's intentional. This is an action where we must be very intentional, purposeful. In other words, where to be zealous, where to be eager, where to take, uh, where to be diligent, where to take pains to achieve, where to be thoughtful about something. What is it? What comes next? Let us be diligent to enter that rest. It's not just any rest. It's a rest he's already mentioned. So before we move on, there are three things that tell us we need to look back to help us understand this. That's why we, that's why we start out by reading chapter 3 and into chapter 4. The first reason is the word therefore at the beginning of verse 11. We always ask when we see that word, what is the therefore Therefore, what is it? Therefore, therefore. And second is that rest. We have to understand what that rest is. And then the command. There's a sense of urgency in the command to be diligent. So this rest that the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is talking about is a big spiritual salvation rest in Christ, in him alone. And this is what God's always had in mind for his people throughout redemptive history. See, from the very beginning, even when he delivered his people out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness, in his kindness, God gave them small cycles of rest to point them to and help them understand the more important, bigger spiritual rest that salvation was and is. It's kind of like a parent who eventually wants his child or wants their child to ride the adult bike, but he's going to give his three-year-old maybe a big wheel and then a tricycle and then a bike with training wheels, all to prepare him, to point him to the ultimate goal, the big bike. And that's kind of the picture of what God was doing in the past. See, God gave small cycles of rest to Israel. They were never to replace or stand in place of the big rest, like the trike. That was never the goal. And these smaller rests were never the end or the goal either. See, God gave cycles of rest to Israel. There was a weekly Sabbath. There was rest for a day. Every seven days, there was the reminder, 
there's rest. And then every seventh year, there was a land Sabbath. They were to give the land a rest for a whole year. So it came around every seven years. So every seven days, then every seven years. And then there was this really big rest. Every 50th year was a rest for the nation. Anyone remember what that's called? The year of? Jubilee. Yes, the year of Jubilee. Um, you know, that was where the slaves um, could go free if they want to go free and, um, and purchase land. Because I'll go back to the Hebrews. There was this rest every seven days and then every seven years and then every 50 years there was this great big rest and these rests for israel were given at mount sinai this is very important these rests were given at mount sinai in the wilderness prior to entering the promised land and then the promised land was another kind of rest for israel that was to make them think of a, about the greater rest that god always intended for them in himself See what it says in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, they would not have spoken of another day after so there's another day. Here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, written by David. Now remember, what was David in Israel's history? Anyone? He was their king. In the wilderness? No, in the promised land. They're already in the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting David from Psalm 95. He says, again, this happened. David, David's saying, Today, in the promised land, Israel, make sure you don't harden your heart if you hear his voice. So you see, Psalm 95 was written long after all those smaller cycles of rest were given in the wilderness. And it was written long after Joshua had led Israel um, into the rest in the promised land. So it was being missed in the wilderness. And now in David's day, seeing his generation doing the same thing in the promised land. See, it's very helpful to understand the writer of Hebrews, he's now in the New Testament, he's establishing a pattern here. His readers, these readers, these Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, are now in danger of what? Of the very same thing. Missing the greater rest now that is in Christ. Missing the rest that is only in Christ. God's big salvation's rest that he offers is continually in danger of being missed. Look at verse 9. It says, So therefore, so there, the, or, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So even though there were all these other rests, still some kind of Sabbath, Sabbath rest for the people of God beyond these. And verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Hmm saying the one who has that sabbath rest of god that salvation's rest is the one who rests from working to earn god's favor resting from trying to do your own good works to establish your own self-righteousness we give up on that that made them weary and heavy laden 
And Jesus said, remember, come to me when you're like that. So there is a rest for us that is marked by the abandonment of works in an effort to make yourself righteous before God. We rest in Christ's righteousness alone. And verse 11 says, be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to enter that rest. So the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, now in his day, he's concerned that history is repeating itself. His readers, these Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, are in danger of missing the greater rest in Christ, especially if they're tempted to go back to Judaism, which is a religion of trying to earn or establish your own self-righteousness through works. That's the rest he has in mind. From a, that's the rest that is in mind here from the writer of Hebrews. The danger for any Christian at any time is what? The very same thing. The very same thing. For us, you know, we do a lot of Christian things, right? That's okay. But there's a danger that we might get to a place where we think it's okay to coast. We won't be diligent. We just give up on being zealous. And that's the point. God's plan is that we rest in Christ's finished work. And it's God's desire that we run, not to earn or get salvation, but once you're saved, we run diligently. We rest and we run. We rest and we run. We're called to be diligent, to be thoughtful. It doesn't just happen accidentally or reflexively. So what would it mean to spend yourself? What would it mean? What does it look like? How do I spend myself? Well, I want to offer two things, and I encourage you to write them down. I didn't put them on the outline again. I meant to. But if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, what, how do I spend myself? Great. I'm ready to write my list. I got my pen in my hand, and just tell me what I need to do. I want to be zealous in this. Just give me the list, and I'm ready to go spend myself, right? Well, here's the first thing. Spend yourself to know. Spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished on the cross for guilty sinners. That's you and me. Spend yourself to know the gospel and its work in you. Spend yourself to know that first. This isn't about spending yourself to do anything to get saved or to earn salvation, to say, stay saved. But spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished on the cross for, for us. Spend time in that, that um, blue pamphlet that you got. Oh, it, it's just rich. And just spend yourself there in knowing the gospel. Let's, let's just look back in Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3 says, um, you know what, and as we look at these passages, let them penetrate your heart. You know, we're to spend ourselves to know these things, to know that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is what Jesus did, and it's finished. We need to spend ourselves to know these things, these gospel truths, these gospel realities. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. 
But we do see him who is made a little made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for us. Spend yourself to make that truth rule over and impact your heart, to impact your temptation to fear. Verse 14 of the same chapter says that through his death, he rendered powerless the devil, and he rendered powerless the fear of death. There's no fear in death for the believer. Spend yourself to know these gospel realities. Chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made, made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what Jesus did for us. He had to be make, made like us in all things to make propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation means satisfaction. Not just satisfaction, though. Add to that word exhaustion. God's wrath is not just satisfied, but it was satisfied and it was completely exhausted. Remember, there is nothing left in God's cup of wrath. Ladies, listen. Let this reality penetrate your heart. When you sin, think about the last time you sinned. Maybe you're convicted of sin. Maybe it was even just this morning. It doesn't even cross God's mind to grab the cup of wrath because if he looked in it, there's nothing left. It's empty. It's poured out on his son. He was exhausted. He made propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath, he exhausted it. For salvation's rest, spend yourself to know these kinds of gospel truths. We're forgetful people, right? I am so forgetful. I need to be reminded, and I, and I want to remind you. And, and that's just discipline two and three when we remind one another. So spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished on the cross for guilty sinners. And secondly, the second point to write down, spend yourself in entrusting your life to Christ and his work on the cross. Spend yourself in entrusting your life to Christ and his work on the cross. It's not enough to just know it. We must entrust our lives to it. To believe these things, we must know them. Think on them and meditate on them and expose our hearts to them. Biblical salvation is about us diligently entrusting ourselves to gospel truths and to gospel realities. Now, in hearing all of this, diligence for entering salvation's rest, please listen very carefully. This is not a diligence that comes from uncertainty. This is not what we're talking about right now. This isn't a diligence that comes from uncertainty about whether or not God's wrath has been satisfied for you. Actually, it's the opposite. This diligence is a diligence that flows or overflows from the certainty that God's wrath has been propitiated, has been satisfied, exhausted by Christ for you. For those who are born again, for Christians, so if you're a believer, you can absolutely be certain of that. And we're called to be diligent in and from that certainty about what Christ has accomplished. Get this. It is actually God's intention that your diligence, that your spending yourself is from a confident trust that what he said he did, 
we did. And so we run and we spend ourselves out of that certainty. Now let me ask you something. What are we at times tempted to do with something that we're certain of or that we're sure of? Well, I don't know about you, but I can start to take things for granted, to get lazy. You know, we can start to take our foot off the gas and start to coast about things that are certain. Thinking like, you know, he said he finished, he said that he will finish what he started, and I'm tired, and I'm distracted, and circumstances are just overwhelming, so I'll just coast, I'll go on cruise control. At other times, you know, maybe I'm tempted to think I still need to earn his favor to stay in his good graces, but really that's a small view of salvation. Salvation's rest is from a confident trust that what he said he did, he did. It's because of that certainty we act on his promises. It is because of that certainty that we participate, we run with diligence and passion. And that's just how God designed salvation to be. It's his plan for his glory. So, in being diligent, spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for us, for guilty sinners, and spend yourself in entrusting your life to them. We all know Philippians 1.6, right? I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul said he's confident of this very thing. And yet in Philippians 2, in verse 12, verses 12 through 13, what are we called to do? Work out. Work out your salvation, not work for not work for, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you hear that? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for or because God is at work in you. He created good works for us, that we would walk in them. Now remember, we are in this mixed condition right? We've been freed from the penalty of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin, but we haven't been freed from the presence of sin. We still have the presence of sin in our mixed condition. So that middle part is your charge. So in working out salvation, we're still battling the presence of sin, the residue of sin. And we must fight the presence of sin. We fight it with and from the gospel, diligently, with and from our new mixed condition heart, with love for Christ, in obedience to him. <coughs> so here's the summary up to this point. There's nothing accidental about us spending ourselves. We need to be intentional. You know, when was the last time you ever ran a mile accidentally? Never, right? Never. It takes intentionality. We are to be thoughtful. We have to think. We have to be thoughtful. And we need to be intentional about our zeal to enter the great salvation's rest that was achieved for us by Christ. So spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished on the cross for us and spend yourself in entrusting your life to them. And the question for us, including myself, is this our passion? It's our passion. Would you say that there's evidence in your life that you're pursuing rest in Jesus Christ? Diligence to pursue Jesus, or are you coasting? Are you coasting? 
Hebrews 4.11 says, Be diligent to enter that rest. Why? So that no one will fall. Do you see that? So that no one will fall. Not just so that you won't fall, but so that no one will fall. And how did they fall? Through following the same example of what? Disobedience. Ladies, we must be concerned about our disobedience. How devastating our disobedience is, our unchecked disobedience. Is it our passion to protect one another from falling? You know, our sin has an impact on others. And it's possible that others might fall if we give them an example of disobedience. Are we passionate about that? You know, I'm, I'm so thankful for this warning. This passage is a great reminder. We need to be concerned about our disobedience. And at times, I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not. At times, I'm not. I'm not as concerned as I need to be. You know, I can even make light of my disobedience, of my sin. I know that I'm well aware of others' disobedience. That's easy, more than my own. So this is a sober warning. Remember, when you're disobedient and you sin, and it's weighing you down, and it's so heavy, and you're discouraged, be diligent to remind yourself of gospel truth, what Christ has done on your behalf. Get that chart out again and meditate on those truths. And then, obey. He calls us to obey. The power to obey comes from him and being motivated by the completed work of Jesus for you, for us, by his grace. So we're to be diligent to spend ourselves to inner rest. God has for us, and that he is for us, and he provides for us in his son. And we fight, and we run diligently. Now, in talking about all of this zealousness, you may be thinking, that feels so exhausting. How can I keep up with this kind of zealousness for my whole life? Well, I don't, I don't know. Have you ever seen um, a faithful servant? You know, she's older and she's been faithful. You may not see an outward kind of energy, but you see a zealousness in her faithfulness in pursuing Christ every day. That's the kind of women we want to be, right? You know, faithful women pursuing Christ diligently and resting in his finished work. Zealousness doesn't mean hyperness, getting all worked up, and doesn't mean emotion, though it certainly can include emotion. You know, if you want to get excited, that's great. But emotions will come and go. This is not an emotional zealousness. This is a zealousness about being diligent to spend ourselves to know what Christ accomplished for us and to entrust our life to him. The second question on your outline, are you passionate to search? The second S word. Are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Let's look at Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Many are probably familiar and have probably memorized this verse. And maybe without paying close attention to verse 11. All right, let's look at verse 11. It says, let's back up. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And then verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. For is the explanation given to, uh, for why the readers need to be diligent. 
So why does it say we need to be diligent? Because of God's word. Because of God's word. We can read it like this. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's so important to understand what God's word is doing with our hearts, with our inner man. This is what discipline one is all about. And the writer of Hebrews already pointed out the relationship between God's divine word and our heart all throughout chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Remember when he's quoting from Psalm 95? Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God, if you hear the words of God, do not harden your hearts. So he's saying there's this relationship between God's word and our hearts. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they always go astray with their hearts. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving what? There it is again, heart. See how he's already been addressing the heart? Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So there's this emphasis on the word and an emphasis on the heart. God's intended that his words would intersect with our hearts. And the problem that he's addressing is that our tendency is to make our hearts unreceptive and hard to God's word. So he's warning them. In verse 12, he's telling us how effective the word of God is with our hearts. Let's look at it again. Verse 12 says, The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if God's word's doing this, all of that in verse 12, if God's word is searching us, searching our inner man, you know, the wisest thing to do is to participate with God's word, to cooperate with God's word. And we do that by giving it the platform to be most effective as it searches. We don't search ourselves apart from God's word, but with God's word. We want to see ourselves as the Word of God sees us. So we cooperate, we participate, we humble ourselves under before His Word. For the Word of God is living and active. This is interesting. Okay, you guys hanging in there? Do you need to stretch? Nope? Okay. In the Greek, if you want to give a word in your sentence emphasis, you know, uh, to make the biggest impact, you put it at the front of the sentence. And I know I just sounded really smart right there, right? <laughs> I don't know Greek, I promise. That's just what I'm told. I struggle with English. Um, but uh, what, so let, but let's look at what the very first word uh, describing the word of God is. It's living. So in the Greek, it would be translated like this. For... Um, God, uh, for living is the word of God. It's emphasized. God's word is living like God is living. God's word is alive and it's active to penetrate our hearts, to search our inner man, to discern us at the deepest level. God's word is energetically alive for his own intentions and purposes in our heart. And then what the author says next, after living is very important, what does it say? The word of God is living and active and it's like a soft cup.
cuddly blanket we want to wrap ourselves up in and it's so pretty no that's not what it says at all Scott uses this illustration in build and I share it every year because I can't improve on his illustrations but he talks about being at a football game or a graduation and somebody takes out one of those beach balls and they blow it up and it's really colorful and it's light and it's soft and they begin to bat it around the ball looks like it's alive right it goes from person to person so they bat it and it goes way over there and that person bats it and it goes way over in another direction and it's flying all over the place um, and it's going really fast and it looks like it's alive and it's active but it is at the mercy of every will that it comes into contact with right it's at their mercy and you know it's really sad that's the way a lot of people view his word today how many churches or Bible studies view his word God's word is just batted around here's what it means to me bat here's what it means to me bat here's what it means to me and they just hit it back and forth to one another as if it depends on what their depends on their will you would never do that with something that's living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Imagine someone in the crowd takes out a two-foot-long sword, double-edged sword, it's the sharpest, and they throw that up in the air. How quick would we want to bat that around? A two-foot double-edged sword. None of us. Now, all those individual wills, don't feel so eager to take a thoughtless swing at that. I don't want to take a thoughtless swing at that. God's word is living. It's active. And it's not just a sharp sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word is subject to his will. Not my will. Not my will. His will alone. So we come into the presence of God's word. We humble ourselves. And we carefully place ourselves under his word, under the sharpest of all instruments. And we handle it very carefully because God is guiding a sharp and active word perfectly. He's guiding it to our inner being, to our inner man. And we should be very careful, should be very humble, very, very gentle, because God's word's not something to just be thrown around. And when we're together, Maybe as we encourage one another or counsel one another, or maybe even as we admonish one another, we should be very careful not to, not to bat it around or to be thoughtless. But to remember it's very sharp and I need to handle it carefully. I need to hand it to you carefully, humbly and gently. Now the description keeps on building. God's word is sharp in order to penetrate deeply and accurately and it's piercing. Verse 12 says, it's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Basically, soul and spirit and joints and marrow is kind of an accumulation of terms expressing the inward part of man. What I can't see physically with my own eyes, like my joints and marrow, what is hidden from my sight in my inward being, it's not hidden from God, from God's word. It's not hidden from God's word. His word has no trouble penetrating to my inner man. And what does it do once it's there? says it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word to judge is a legal term, and it means that it's the great critic of our heart, great critic of 
our inner man. And you know, the Word of God doesn't open us up at the heart level to the place we can't even see into the inner man, lay us bare, and then say, all right, you know, I've laid you bare, so what do you think? How do you feel about this? You go ahead and give your opinion of what you see. No, his word judges. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We're opened up so that it can give its opinion. It can give its criticism. It can give its rebuke. And you know, it can open us up so it can give, its, give us its encouragement where we've been conformed to the image of Christ. See, I have trouble discerning what's going on in my heart. My motives, my thoughts, my intentions, what's pure, what's sinful. When I'm left to my own assessments, it's just all tangled up. Our motives, our thoughts, and intentions can be so tangled and intertwined and twisted together in our hearts. There's right thinking, there's sinful thinking, and they're so tangled within my heart. Um, and it can be hard to untangle, to pull it all apart and to discern. Left to myself, I can't search myself effectively to see what's going on in my inner man. I'll be tempted to give myself the benefit of the doubt and maybe rationalize. And, you know, I'm so thankful that I can even recognize that. Let's be thankful that we can recognize that because it's a much better place than we were before. Right? We're in a new condition, and because of that, though mixed, though there's still a residue of sin, we're not who we were before. It's nothing compared to, to what we will be, but we're not who we were before. So let's be thankful, and we battle, let's battle, we participate. We can be encouraged that we're not what we once were, and we participate in what God's Word is doing. Okay, so God's Word enables us to search and see, uh, and see our own heart. That's why our lives can't be lived far away from His Word, because my view of myself, our view of ourselves will be twisted. If we have God's word in our hearts and minds, we can see ourselves as God's word sees us and search ourselves as God's word searches, and that is exactly what we need. And it's very wise for us to participate with God's word and its, and its searching, to position ourselves by his word or before his word and participate with its searching and, and even to long for it. Do we long for that? We open it up. And it's really foolish to think you know, that I can hide or I can bluff or manipulate or rationalize anything before God. I think I can keep secrets from God and keep our thoughts and motives hidden from God. That's impossible. He sees everything. So when we say, shepherd your heart to the word of God, that's discipline one, what we mean is position your heart there. Position your heart there before God and his word so that his word gives you an accurate view and perspective of where your heart really is. It's the best place to be. And again, all of this is given to given in verse 12 as the explanation as to why we're to be diligent, to spend ourselves to inner salvation's rest because God's word is searching us. His word has always functioned that way. His word was doing that back um, with the people back in the wilderness. When he was speaking through his voice, when you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Participate with my voice. So don't harden your hearts to God's word. Instead, 
participate with it. Invite it. Invite it. Plead with God for an attitude that wants to participate. You know, Lord, please keep me humble. Please keep me from hardening my heart. Please plead for a careful, humble, tender heart and attitude that wants to participate, that wants to cooperate. And you know, if you start to coast or do nothing, you can expect that your inner man, your heart, even in its mixed condition, will not be receptive to his word. It'll grow hard. It'll grow cold. There's so much at stake. So are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? And number three, are you passionate to strip, another S word, are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? Verse 12 describes the word of God and what it does and sees. And now verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes with whom we have to do. We're not hidden from a sight. No creature is hidden from a sight. God's fully aware of everything in us, everything that we are at the heart level. There's no use in trying to hide. We're open. We're laid bare. Um, we're naked before God. It's not completely clear what laid bare means. It's parallel to the word naked or open or laid bare. Some think it was this lifting um, of the head of the sacrificial animal to slit its throat. It was laid bare. And some think it was a wrestling move. Um, that was used with the, in the gladiator games where they, would, they actually wrestled naked and they would get their opponent down into a hold and when the neck was exposed, it was laid bare. He was vulnerable. There was nothing he could do but submit, surrender. You're submissive. You're not in control. That's the point. Most likely, it's a lifting up of the chin, lifting up of the face, to have full face-to-face -face contact, full eye-to-eye -eye contact with God. You know, I used to do this with my kids, and I see some of you moms doing this, where you take their little face, and, you know, you lift it up, and you say, look at me, look at me, look, you know, look at my eyes. I, I want to see you. Look at, look, at, look at my eyes. And, you know, what do they do? You know, their eyes are doing this. Like, their face is towards you, and their eyes are like this. But why do you do that? It's because you want your child to know, you know, I see what you're doing, and I, I want your full attention. I want your full attention. You know what we need to remember? God sees us. God's fully aware of everything at us and at the heart level. So it's good to remember this. We need our eyes lifted up. We need to remember he sees me, sees through everything. So if God already right now sees us as we truly are, what should we do? Submit. Surrender. Remember, believer, he's not going to crush you. He already crushed his son for you. If he already sees us open, laid bare before him, vulnerable, vulnerable before him, we can drop any kind of mask or disguise. We can surrender and submit to him. And we can communicate with God. You know, God, I know you see me for who I truly am. And I'm glad. I'm glad. I need to remember you see me. You see me as my father. And this is so helpful in removing any mask or disguise or, as C.J. Mahaney puts it, any carefully edited version of ourselves. And we can remember, uh, or we can remove those masks, those shields, before others with our family or friends or small group. We don't have to have shields up. But, but we need to participate with God by embracing this truth that God sees me, and that's good. So strip yourself 
because nothing is hidden from God in the end. So think about this. Here's how we can put it all together. Search yourself with the word of God so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the word. Why? All so that you can effectively spend yourself for salvation's rest. Search yourself with the word of God so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the word. Why? All so that you can effectively spend yourself for salvation's rest. Okay, so you have three points from our passage from Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, and then there's one more, number four. We're almost done. It's from the greater context of Hebrews, and it's this, the fourth F word. Soak yourself. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I looked up these synonyms for the word soak. It's immerse, steep, marinate, infuse, saturate, bathe, drench. Do that. Do that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, 11-13 is a very sobering warning. It's very sober. It's heavy. Um, and the writer is concerned that disobedience is gaining ground and that people are starting to coast. That history is repeating itself. It's a very serious time and it needed a very serious warning. There's a sense of urgency in this command to be diligent. And I can't help but think that after hearing this, you know, there may be some conviction and there may even be some discouragement right now. Maybe you're not spending yourself. And you're not searching yourself, and you're not stripping yourself before the God of the Word. The writer of Hebrews knows, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exactly what we need to hear next. And what does he write? Look at verse, look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, ladies, we have a great high priest. And the high priest stands between us and God, and he's for us. He's on the Father's side, and he intercedes for us there. It says he's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He's the one who, back in chapter 1, one verse 3, made purification of sins. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and there's nothing left for him to do. It's finished. Know this and rest in this. The real and reality is like this. He became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What did the writer of Hebrews know that we needed to hear after this? He takes us to Jesus, our great high priest. The gospel. Soak yourself there in what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. Soak yourself in the good news of the gospel. And you know, I can't assume even that all of you are my sisters in Christ. I don't know your hearts. God does. So regardless of where you are, soak yourself in the gospel. So that if you're not a believer, if your heart is not transformed, if your eyes, if the eyes of your hearts have not been opened to see your true need for a Savior, your true need for forgiveness of sin, for salvation's rest in Christ alone, he would give you a new heart. And um, he would grant you repentance and forgiveness and true faith 
true rest in him alone. Let's look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Anyone feeling weak? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then look what it says next. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Remember, he sees everything that we are. That might be kind of scary, yet what does he say here? He says you're weak and you're not diligent, so you need to run and hide. No, he says draw near, draw near with confidence. Don't run and hide. Don't run away and think you have to beat yourself up or get your act together and then come to God. No, draw near to God now. You're weak. Draw near to him with confidence. To the throne of what? To the throne of what you deserve? No, to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need, to help in time of need. Let us be diligent to soak in the grace of God. Grace, it's God's undeserved favor toward us. We've got a mediator, great high priest. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Ladies, he knows that we're weak in this. He knows. He knows that we're in need of mercy, and we don't pursue him diligently as we should. He knows that we all need to find grace. He knows that we are in great need. And you know, that's who his son is for us. That's who his son is for you. He is the one who provides all of those things for you. And look what, and look what uh, he does for you. He has a throne of grace where he gives mercy. We're coasters. We're in a mixed condition with a residue of sin and we're weak. We need help. He provides grace. He is there for us. Draw near. Soak yourself in verses 14 through 16. Just don't stay in verses 11 through 13. Knowing that he's, he's our great high priest and that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and that we can draw near with confidence to his throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need does not motivate us to coast. a great motivator to keep going to run to run by his grace and to know and draw near to our savior to the one we're running to and for chapter 7 verse 25 this is a good place to soak he says he's able to save forever those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them it doesn't say he's able to save those forever who keep on keeping on in their own strength. If you do that, you're going to grow weary, discontent, ungrateful. Now, you believer, you can come with confidence to the throne of grace. He tells us to, knowing that he always lives to make intercession for you. He is our great high priest. Father, this is very sobering and very encouraging. We're weak. We need your help. And thank you that we can come before your throne boldly for help. You are our amazing high priest. 
we need your help. May we be diligent to pursue your great salvation to rest in you alone. May we live openly, honestly before you and others. And as we go into our discussion time now, Lord, I pray that we would do just that, that we would, that we would spur one another on and that we would love one another well and um, that we would build your body, the church, or that that's what it would do. It would have this, this great purpose. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.